I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians and chapter 1, and we'll be spending most of our time uh, this evening in this uh, famous letter of Paul's to the Colossians, and particularly looking at verses 15 to 23. Tonight we're looking at what I've called 10 foundational principles of a God-centered life, and you will find each of those 10 principles listed on a website called godcenteredlife.org, and you'll be relieved to know we're not going to go through all 10 tonight, Um, but we will look at the first of those 10, and the thinking is that if we're all still alive and if the good Lord tarries at some point in the near-ish future, we'll get through all 10 in the evening services. And we'll just kind of check them off one by one as opportunity arises. And the thinking behind these has been that it's important that we have a frame for understanding Christianity in our day, that those of us here this evening who are Christians are more and more being asked questions, and one response to that is to train ourselves with apologetics, good answers to those questions, and that's certainly a good thing to do. I've written apologetic papers myself, I've written an apologetics book, I think that's good. But the more I reflect on the changing times in which we live, it seemed to me that actually there's a prior need uh, before answering questions. Uh, It's a bit like someone who knows very little about mathematics perhaps a first grade or second grade, going up to Einstein and asking a mathematical question about the theory of general relativity. The child doesn't know what he or she does not know. And when I listen and observe the kind of questions that are being asked of Christians these days, People don't know what they don't know. They ask questions about gender, of course, uh, the exclusivity of Christ, and is Jesus the only way to God, and suffering. I remember recently having quite a long conversation over the phone with someone uh, who had left the faith, and he had many questions about suffering, but the more I listened to him, the more I realized that The frame, the big picture, had been lost in his mind. And so uh, tonight, and as we do these ten foundational principles, what I want us to do is to reinsert the frame. And obviously that's a metaphor, a frame. 
Uh, if you came visited me in my study or in my office, depending on what you want to call the place where I stick my books, uh, you would notice that on the wall in my office there are a number of pictures, and each of those pictures have a frame. Some of the frames look quite fancy. Some of them look quite plain. Um, the most fancy frame is a frame of my doctorate from Cambridge that has all sorts of fancy lettering around it. There are others that are very plain looking, the frames. Um, my undergraduate and masters are very plain looking frames, though actually in some ways I'm more pleased about the undergraduate than the doctorate for various reasons. And the master's frame, if you look carefully, you would notice has a stain right across it, a coffee stain, which just goes to show how much time I spent drinking coffee when I was doing my graduate studies. There's another frame that inside it, there is a document that looks very obscure that actually says that I am a citizen of London. Um, it's a medieval right that I inherited from my father. I am a citizen. Of course, the, the word citizen comes from city. I'm a citizen of the city of London. This gives me all sorts of important privileges. A most prominent among them being the right to drive sheep across London Bridge. <laughs> I have never tested whether I would be able to actually do it or not, but anyway, there are all these frames, and they give a context to what's inside. And so we're trying to put the frame, the right frame, around all the things we hear. So ten foundational principles, they're a frame, and the first is the glory of Christ. And I'm going to read, you can find these all, there's a little paragraph under each of these on that webpage, godcenterlife.org. I'm going to read out the paragraph that I wrote about the glory of Christ. And then because we're a Bible teaching church, we're just going to look at what Colossians says about that um, principle. So here it is, principle one, the glory of Christ, a subject as huge as the universe and infinitely greater still. He alone is worthy of worship and praise, and in him alone is our true worth discovered, fully God fully human, Jesus Christ and his glory is the center, the focus, the pinnacle, the joy of all joys, the end of all ends, the one for whom we are made and by whom we live. Soli Deo Gloria, which means only to God be the glory. Now, let's look at what the Bible says about the glory of Christ. Uh, you'll find it in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Let's hear God's word. 
He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. So we're considering the glory of Christ and trying to get our mind around the frame of that. And the rest of this sermon is going to have basically three movements to it as we look at this passage in the light of that Uh, theme, the glory of Christ, which of course is what it's all about. Uh, The first movement will be to set this passage in its context. Uh, We're looking at the book of Colossians, and we need to make sure we understand it in its context. That's going to be key for us grasping what uh, the Apostle Paul is saying about the glory of Christ. So that will be the first movement, setting it in the context of the book of Colossians. And then the second movement will be looking particularly at what uh, the the Apostle says uh, here in these verses about Christ. Now, of course, this is a famous passage with all sorts of profundity in it, and we can't possibly cover every layer uh, that Paul has in his thinking here. Uh, But we can pull out the main elements of it, and I'll seek to help us do that when we look at what Paul says about Christ in these particular verses. That's going to be the second movement. And then the third movement, would you look at what Paul says here about the condition. There is a condition, there is a requirement uh, that uh, we need to meet if we are to experience uh, the glory of Christ in our own lives. As we thought this morning, it's one thing to know about God is another thing to taste the goodness of God. 
And there is a condition that Paul has in this text uh, that uh, we need to meet a requirement if we are to experience the glory of Christ. So those will be our three movements, the context, then Christ here, and then the condition. First then, let's look at the context. And the the key word in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians is fullness. Fullness. You'll find it in verse 19. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You'll see it again in chapter 2, verse 2, where in our translations it puts it, Uh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding or the fullness of understanding. Um, And uh, you'll see the same a little bit later in uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in verse 10 You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Uh, We don't know for sure what the Colossian uh, church was facing in terms of false teaching, but there was some kind of false teaching. And we know some of it. uh, It's listed, if you look at verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, you'll see there um, some of the kind of things they were saying. Let, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Uh, these are some of the things they were uh, teaching, the false teaching, or verse 21. They say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is ascetic, legalistic, ritualistic rules. But these false teachers are coming in to the church and saying, in order to be filled, in order to have fullness, You must follow these rules. You must keep these special days. You must have these kind of rituals in your services in order to be filled, to have fullness. And Paul is saying over and over again throughout the letters of the Colossians, no, fullness comes from the one who is filled with the fullness of God. And our fullness is in him and him alone. You don't need any other rituals, no other rules, no other special days, no other special feasts. Your fullness as a Christian is in him and him alone. And uh, to underscore this, the main verse probably or the summary verse of the letter of Colossians is uh, verse 6 of chapter 2 where he says uh, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him in other words you've become a Christian you've received Jesus well how then do you make progress how do you grow as a Christian how do you have fullness answer same way 
Same way as you became a Christian. As you received Jesus, so walk in him. So the heresy, many of the details of which we don't know or what the false teachers are saying to the Christians of Colossians, but the substance and basics of it we do. The heresy was, uh, you've become a Christian, that's good. But now, in order to be really filled, you need to follow these rituals, these rules, these feasts. And Paul says over and over again, no, no, no. To be filled, you need more of the fullness of God. And where is the fullness of God? In Christ. So as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. Obviously, there's progress to be made. um, But the progress is more and more of Jesus. So that's that's the context of the book. And right away, there's a lot of application, isn't there? Um, We sometimes uh, put it like this, that it's easy to think that Jesus is the ABC of the Christian faith. Jesus is the basics. But if you're really sophisticated, you'll have some special rituals or some special rules or some special feast days. The ABCs, I accept. But to be really filled, I know I need these other rules and regulations and feasts. But no, the fullness of God and our fullness is discovered in being filled with Christ. He isn't just the ABC. He's the A to Z. He's everything. That's what Paul was arguing in his letter to the Colossians. And the the theological high point of the letter The practicalities come in the second half, as is so often in Paul's letters. But the theological high point is in this chapter we read out, verses 15 to 23. So we've had the context. Now what is is Paul saying here about Christ, in particular in these verses? And as I said, they are extremely profound, and we could easily spend a year (laughs) Every Sunday evening, thinking just about these verses, and of course we're not going to, but we could easily. Um, I, I, and so there's, I'm not going to say everything, of course, that's here, but I do want to point out the main elements. And the easiest way to see the main elements is to notice the repetition. So Paul repeats the word all, obviously. So verse 15, he is the image, this is Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. And then at the uh, end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, and he is before all things. And again, and in him all things hold uh, together. And then a little hidden in the translation, verse 18, at the end it says, that in everything he might be preeminent. Of course, everything is just another way of saying all thing. We don't say all thing in English, but it's another all, that in all things he might be preeminent. Uh, uh, Verse uh, 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself 
all things. Uh, and then uh, verse uh, 23, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So clearly, he's emphasizing the word all. And once we begin to see that theme here, we get a sense of the majestic scope of Jesus. All, all of creation, all the fullness of God, all things, everything we can imagine, past, present, and future, everything under his dominion, everything for his glory, the whole of the gospel, the whole of the church, the whole of the universe. You know, some people sometimes get very excited, don't they, when they hear some new scientific piece of data about the scale of the universe. But of course, if we're really thinking correctly, that's all very well. But actually, Jesus is far bigger. All things at the microscopic level and the macroscopic level. Everything. All things. It's, it's an astonishing vision of who Jesus is. So, again, there's very... There's so much here, but I just want you to see that repeated word, all. But there's another repeated word. It's only repeated um, twice or two times as it mentioned, but it's also very important, and it's the word firstborn. So verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then uh, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That, of course, is, means his resurrection from the dead. Now, that word firstborn is quite difficult to understand. I'll give, you, give us a little bit of help on that in just a moment. But first of all, I want you to just notice that it's repeated of, uh, in a structural way. So we have here, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, all creation. And then he's the firstborn of, uh, of the church. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything and all things, he might be preeminent. I'm moving through the argument a little quicker than I would if we were doing a series in Colossians. But can you see the point that's been made structurally? Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn also of the church. We might say of the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. So that in all things he might be preeminent. Paul's saying not only preeminent in creation, but also preeminent in the new creation. The new heaven and the new earth. Because he's the firstborn of the, new, of the resurrection. The firstborn uh, from the dead. Now that word firstborn is a little tricky to understand. Um, let me just give you two or three helps. Uh, first of all, as the fathers, the early church fathers, quickly noticed, the Greek here is deliberately chosen. So Paul, if he wanted to say that Jesus was the first created, there's a very good word to use for that in Greek. But he did not use that word. He chose firstborn. 
And in any case, it cannot possibly in context mean that Jesus is created because he talks about him being the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19. But the fathers, the early church fathers, the early church leaders, notice very quickly that Paul chose deliberately a word not first created but first born. Uh, But what is more uh, helpful, I think, than simply that observation is that the word firstborn is a messianic title. It's a deliberately chosen word for the Messiah. Um, and you can, if you have a Bible open, you can turn to it. You don't, I'll read it for you if you, if you don't. But uh, Psalm 89, verse 20 is, uh, 27 is probably the easiest place to see this. Um, where it's talking about David. And as you know, David is uh, the type, uh, the the prefiguring of the Messiah, um, Jesus in the line of David, King David. And then verse 27, the psalmist says, and I will make him the firstborn. Of course, David wasn't the firstborn, literally. What's it talking about? It's talking about uh, the Christ, firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn is a title for the Messiah. In royal thinking, there's this principle of the firstborn being the one who will be king. It's called in Latin primogeniture, which is just a Latin way of saying firstborn, by the way. He's the firstborn. That is, he is the king. So when it says he is the firstborn, what Paul's saying is, He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the firstborn. He has primogeniture. He's the king. And uh, when it says firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean that he's a part of creation. It means he's over creation. The same way that if we substituted another messianic title, king, we would understand. If he said he is the king of all creation... No one would ever think that Paul was saying that he's a part of creation. To be a king of all creation means he's the king over creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. That is the king over all creation. Uh, A famous commentator called uh, Lightfoot um, uh, put it like this. He said, he is the firstborn and as the firstborn, the absolute heir... H-E-I-R, and sovereign Lord of all creation. You see the kingship idea. So he's the king, the firstborn of all creation. Now before we move on to the condition, I think we just need to pause and reflect in adoration of the extraordinary fact that just a few decades after Jesus had died, someone is writing this about him. It's amazing. Just a few decades later, they're saying, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Well, there is a condition if we are to experience that fullness. 
And it said for us, it's, um, uh, it's found in verse 23. Here's the condition. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister, if. So this fullness that uh, we have access to if we're a Christian, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, again, you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Uh, There is a condition if we are to experience it. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, So if we are to have access to experiencing the glory of Christ, it requires ongoing faith. Well, that's always the condition, isn't it? Faith. As we saw this morning, that mere touch of faith, touching the garment of Jesus, and to continue in faith. In the context here in Paul's letter to the Colossians, what he's saying is, don't get off track and start trying to find fullness in other things. Uh, Sex, work, money, uh, here in Colossians, rich religious rituals. No, in Christ. In Him is all the fullness. If. You'll experience it if faith. Well, that's our first uh, frame of the ten uh, foundational uh, principles. If you are a fan of uh, C.S. Lewis and his uh, Narnia books, you'll know that there's a scene earlier on in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, where before the children go off to Narnia, there's a picture on the wall. And it's like all pictures, it's got a frame. And as they stare at that picture, which is a picture of a Narnian ship, it begins to come to life. And it starts to fill the frame. And then the water begins to overflow the frame. Now, at the end of the day, no frame is big enough for Jesus. In him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. But as we look at him, if we continue in faith, then we are drawn into, well, in Narnia terms, we're drawn into the adventure to find out more and more about who Jesus is and to be able to serve him with fullness. And it's my prayer that uh, this consideration tonight would help us do that. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you that all the fullness uh, dwells in Jesus. And we thank you that in him we have everything we need. Help us then to continue 
in faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.